0: I am your host, Katherine Lopez-Luker. During this time of COVID, many people aren't able to use the library in the same way as in the past. To help bring more stories to more readers, many publishing companies are allowing books that are normally unavailable for copyright reasons to be read out loud and shared with others until December thirty-first, 2023. The stories that fall under that special permission will all be taken down on that date, so listen now while they're available. Today's story is shared with permission of Harper HarperCollins Children's Books. In these chapters, Eleanor has a dream of her own, in which she watches Prince Krishna build a beautiful dress out of snow, and then... Both children, so tired of winter, dream of walking a sandy beach and climbing into a chambered nautilus. Still, winter lingers on and on in Concord, and Mr. Preak has given Aunt Lily an ultimatum. The Hall family must pay the back taxes in full in two weeks' time or lose the house. Uncle Freddy's idea of living in the hollow apple tree is charming, but unrealistic. If only they could find some jewels. Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. The Diamond in the Window by Jane Langton Chapter 17 The Bride of Snow The snow was falling in the dream, too. And of course, since she was small enough to go right into the valentine, she could see the separate flakes in all their crystalline perfection. The valentine towered over her. Behind it was another high lacy square, and behind that another, and then another and another. Before her they stood in line like giant frames, each one with its cut-out heart to walk through. Like moon gates in a Japanese garden. But the valentine wasn't standing on the windowsill. It was towering whitely and fragilely up to the bare gray elm tree tops on Monument Square. And through the empty hearts, she could see a tableau as pretty as a picture. In the middle was a huge snowman with a red muffler around his neck. In front of the snowman, pelting it with snowballs, were Ned and Nora. Nora wore a little red cape and hood, and Ned was bundled into a heavy sweater, with red mittens and a red hat with a long tail, and behind them, behind the snowman, rising up in the center of the tableau, was the Civil War Memorial Obelisk. Snow had fallen on the letters of the inscription, accenting and outlining them in white. Eleanor knew the words by heart. They said, Faithful unto death. She began climbing through the heart-shaped opening. It was slow going. She had to lift her legs high as she climbed over, sinking deep into the downy snow on the other side. Her stocking was still sagging, and she hung onto the top of it through her skirt feeling awkward. She called to Ned and Nora, but her voice was muffled in the snow, and they didn't hear. Only two more valentines to climb through. Eleanor flopped along full of hope. Perhaps this time she would really catch up with the lost children and play with them, and bring them back home with her again. But that was not to be. Not this time. Nora threw a snowball at the snowman and missed. Then Ned threw one, very hard, and hit the snowman's round head so squarely that it nearly toppled off. The head was shoved back on the snowman's hard-packed body, and it reared up there at a new angle, looking oddly threatening and weird. Then Eleanor, with one leg up over the next valentine opening, stopped. Had she really seen what she thought she saw? In a horrible, slushing way, the snowman seemed to be moving forward, clawing with its twig arms at Ned. Nora and Ned started to run away from it, packing snowballs and throwing them as they went. All Norah's went wild, but Ned's were aimed well and truly. They hit the snowman again and again. At last, he seemed to stop frozen and still again. Ned and Nora were gone, but someone else was coming. Eleanor stood behind the last valentine and watched. There were two people coming, a man and a girl, and she could see that they would meet directly in front of her, right in front of the snowman and the monument to make a charming sentimental picture within the pretty heart-shaped frame. The first was Prince Krishna. He was walking along, looking overwhelmingly handsome, wearing a bright red turban and a grave black coat. There was a little book in his hand, and he was studying it so carefully that he didn't see where he was going, and he collided with the girl. Eleanor couldn't see at first who the girl was. She was tall, and she wore a gray scarf pulled around her head and a smart, close-fitting jacket. Then the girl pulled off her scarf, and her red hair tumbled down in front of the place where it was caught up in a big bow. It was Aunt Lily, the pretty, young Aunt Lily in the album. Prince Krishna's face was flaming. He dropped his book, and they both bent to pick it up, bumping their heads together. Aunt Lily stood up laughing, but Prince Krishna's face when he stood up had an expression so serious and loving that she stopped laughing and bent her head. He took her hand with a beautiful, gentle gesture and spoke to her softly. Aunt Lily looked down at the snow, then gave him her other hand. Then she looked up at him and smiled and turned quickly and hurried away. Her long skirts passed near eleanor and looking up at her eleanor could see that her face glowed with happiness prince krishna just stood where he was his face too radiant with love as he watched her go eleanor sucked in her breath behind prince krishna the snowman towered high and now it was mushing forward again its stick arms vibrating Why did it look so different from that same jolly snowman that turns up always under the mittened hands of any child playing in the snow? The features were made of small sticks, and some trick of twiggy growth gave the snowman's nose a downward hook and the mouth a wicked grin. Watch out! Watch out! Had Prince Krishna heard her? he had started up and set off again at a brisk walk. The snowman was left behind. Then all at once it ran together and melted into a sodden heap. Eleanor climbed over the last of the valentine gates and hurried after Prince Krishna, tugging at her stocking. Where was he going? What was he doing? He was reaching up and doing something with his hands. He was gathering snowflakes. They were still falling in enormous, flat, cartwheel crystals. Prince Krishna collected them in armfuls as he walked. He was heading for an open field. Eleanor struggled after him and found her way among the stubbled grass. The snowflakes wafted gently against its icy bristles and clung to them, resting upon clusters of other great crystals, angularly cocked or hooked together or layered one upon another. What was Prince Krishna doing now, with his armfuls of snowflakes? He was weaving them together. He strung a ruffled length of them, like angelic laundry, from the prongs of a barbed wire fence. He tossed some onto fence posts, where they sat on little pillows of snow, like frozen antimacassars, and then he began weaving it into a wide fabric and draping it loosely over his arm. Was it the warmth of his fingers that melted together the tips of the crystal arms, or did he somehow mesh and hook them into one another? Prince Krishna stood now at the edge of the field in a little clearing, surrounded by a bushy growth of young saplings. Deftly, surely, swiftly, he was setting about a new piece of work. Upward from the surface of the snow, he was building something, drawing up between his hands the tissues of snow that he had woven. Eleanor could only breathe, Oh! and Ah! It was a dress, purely white, fragilely strong, gather and fold and pleat, constructed of a lace more delicate than any Eleanor had ever seen. The skirt was a softly falling cylinder with a flowing train, narrowing around the waist and then flaring out to encase a bodice, and then narrowing again to form a little lacy band around the throat. The sleeves were thin tunnels of woven snow, and above, suspended from pine boughs, a tissue of veiling drooped forward over the airy volume, where the head should be. "'and blew behind in a billow of lacy mist. "'It was Aunt Lily's wedding dress. "'It was far and away the most beautiful wedding dress "'ever worn by any bride in the world. "'Prince Krishna stood back to look at it. "'Then he strode to the barbed wire fence "'and caught up some of the lacy ruffles that he had hung there. "'Eleanor saw his blood come and drop on the snow.' He had pricked his finger on the sharp hooked wire, but he didn't know it. He lifted the ruffling and held it around the neck of the wedding dress. A drop of blood fell from his finger and stained the bodice of the wedding dress. It coloured a snowflake on the left side of the front. Prince Krishna turned pale when he saw it and tried to pull out the red stained crystals, but they were hooked fast together. Instead, He pulled something out of his pocket, something red and shining, and pinned it over the place to cover it. It was a ruby brooch. Then carefully, and with a look of sorrow on his face, Prince Krishna detached his gleaming gown from the trees and carried the dress away, cradled lovingly in his arms. The dream was over. Eleanor woke up and stared at the ceiling of the tower room. The soft red light from the window had deepened to crimson. Red is for Prince Krishna's blood, thought Eleanor. How long had she been asleep? She rolled over and looked out of the window. Eddie and Abraham Hotchkiss were still rolling in the snow. Downstairs, Leonard Updike was grinding out the scale of D Major and always forgetting to sharp the sea. Hardly any time at all. Eleanor sat up and rubbed her eyes. There were patterns under her eyelids when she did that. Patterns like snowflakes. Was there a real snowflake wedding dress? If there was, then it was the Bride of Snow, and the brooch was the Flawless Ruby. Eleanor knew one place to look for the treasure, and she went straight to it. Leonard Updike was just banging into the happy farmer when she found the old dressmaker's dummy standing dustily in its place in the corner of the attic. Da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da, Leonard pounded, his left hand making sloppy oompa chords. Eleanor hummed the tune and undid some of the pins that held the dummy closely wrapped in ugly black muslin. One corner was free now. She peeked in. There was a gleam of white. It was lace, the softest, cloudiest lace. da 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 shouted Eleanor. She had found it. She ran down the attic stairs and the back stairs and out the kitchen door and into the snow in her stocking feet, shouting for Eddie. Abraham Hotchkiss agreeably went home, and soon Eleanor and Edward were back beside the dummy in the attic, pulling out pins. Standing there in her sopping stockings, Eleanor told Eddie as much of her dream as she could remember. At last they had freed the black shroud of its pins, and together, very carefully, they could lift it off. It was Aunt Lily's snowflake wedding dress. The train was still pinned up, and the veil was folded over the top. Reverently, Eleanor unpinned them and shook them loose. To her surprise, the delicate lace was not cold but warm. She took the veil to the window and held it up to the light. Surely it was just very beautiful crochet or some extraordinary lace made by nimble-fingered old women in Ireland or France or Belgium. But it was not. Look, said Edward, every little piece of the pattern is different. It was true, They looked and looked, holding up corner after corner of the veil, the sleeves, the train. Nowhere could they find two elements alike. Always, always, they were distinct, unique, endlessly different, exquisite hexagons. The front of the figure was still in shadow. Was the ruby there? There was a dark splotch on the front. Eleanor reached for it and touched it. The ruby was gone, of course. It would be. Anything they could turn into spot cash was always missing. Ever so carefully, Eleanor turned the dummy toward the light. Prince Krishna's blood was a small brown stain. The blood was dry, but a sense of tragedy welled out of it. Look, said Eleanor. It's right... Over Aunt Lily's heart. On his way to bed that night, Edward saw something white sticking out from under the front door. He pulled it out and looked at it. Hey, Eleanor, he said, here's another valentine for you. Eleanor took it and looked at it suspiciously. Had Uncle Freddie sent it? But he hadn't, nor had Eddie or Aunt Lily. It was one of the cheap penny ones from the ten-cent store. Inside the envelope was a valentine that showed a funny, apple-cheeked boy with an enormous dish full of red cherries. The printed message said, Life would be just a bowl of cherries if you would be my valentine. On the back, in very tiny, faint pencil, were the initials B.P. Chapter eighteen The Chambered Nautilus snow in February is the proper thing to have. Snow in March is too much of a good thing. Dirty glaciers of it surrounded the house, and icy gray peninsulas extended across the front yard, decomposing in sandy slush along the sidewalk on warm days and glassing up again on cold ones. Winter hung on like a bitter grudge. Would it never end? You know where I'd like to be right now, said Edward. He was playing with his jackknife on the front porch. The narrow blade was perfect for throwing it nearly always stuck point down. His throwing hand was bare. it was whitish blue with cold. No where said Eleanor lying on the beach with my bare feet digging in the sand, and warm sunshine shining on my stomach, and, oh, stop, said Eleanor. But Edward went on while he narrowed his eyes and threw the knife over and over again at a certain mark in the board floor. He would get up after a while, he said, and run along the edge of the water, which would be warm. Then he would wade in and find shells and he would look for dead, smelly fish carcasses higher up on the beach. Then he would plunge into the water and swim rapidly out to sea, and dive underwater, and battle with a shark, wrestling with it violently, and finally sending it to Davy Jones with his trusty jackknife. Trevor Nasnabor had obviously taken over here. Edward Hall couldn't even swim. Eleanor leaned back on the peeling paint of a knobby porch pillar and closed her eyes. I'd just like to hear the sound of the waves coming in, she said. Edward stopped with his knife in throwing position and looked up at her. You can do that already, he said. He folded up his knife and went indoors and ran upstairs. In a moment, he came down with the big seashell from the tower room in his hand. Eleanor stood in the parlor with her heavy coat unbuttoned, and held the big shell cup to her ear. Do you hear it? said Edward. At first she couldn't hear it. Then she could, a dim roar like the noise of the surf, as though the shell had stored up and bottled the sound of the ocean from which it came, and now was letting it out again, softly. Let me try, said Eddie. Eleanor watched him, Look, she said, squinting at the shell, there's something written on it. Eddie took it away from his ear and turned it over in his hands. So there is, he said. He read it aloud. Build the more stately mansions, oh my soul. Uncle Freddy popped his head through the parlor curtain. That's perfect, he said. Another motto. Just let me jot that down. He disappeared, and then burst through again, carrying his embroidery hoop. "'Why didn't I think of that myself?' he said. He took notes rapidly in purple thread, leaning over to look at the inscription on the shell. "'What does it mean, Uncle Freddy?' said Eleanor. "'Well, of course. Waldo thought of it first, said Uncle Freddy. He bowed and waved his hoop graciously at Emerson's white marbled bust." But Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote The Chambered Nautilus. Uncle Freddy went on to explain it in his own singular way, trying to draw pictures rapidly with his needle and thread on the embroidery hoop. Finding that too slow, he made a series of hasty pencil scratches on his cuff. Eleanor and Edward gradually began to understand that the shell itself was called a chambered nautilus, and that the little creature that had lived in it had built it all himself. As he grew larger, he had sealed off a room behind him and built himself a bigger one, and he went on and on building larger chambers for himself until he had finished building the big shell they held in their hands. It was just chamber spiraling out beyond chamber. Uncle Freddy tapped his pencil on the picture he had drawn on his cuff the ship of pearl he said then he tossed pencil thimble needle thread and hoop to the four corners of the room bounded up on the sofa and declaimed the poem by heart this is the ship of pearl which poets fane, sails the unshadowed main the venturous bark that flings on the sweet summer wind its purpled wings engulfs enchanted where the siren sings and coral reefs lie bare. Where the cold sea-maids rise to the sun, their streaming hair. Year after year behold the silent toil that spreads his lustrous coil. Still, as the spiral grew, he left the past year's dwelling for the new, stole with soft step its shining archway through, built up its idle door. STRETCHED IN HIS LAST FOUND HOME, AND KNEW THE OLD NO MORE. BUILD THEE MORE STATELY MANSIONS, O MY SOUL, AS THE SWIFT SEASONS ROLL. LEAVE THY LOW-VAULTED PAST, LET EACH NEW TEMPLE, NOBLER THAN THE LAST, SHUT THEE FROM HEAVEN WITH A DOME MORE VAST, TILL THOU AT LENGTH ART FREE, LEAVING THINE OUTGROWN SHELL by life's unresting sea. Say, said Edward, that's pretty good. Uncle Freddy got down off the sofa and scrabbled around on his hands and knees for his embroidery hoop. It was Waldo, of course, who gave him the idea, he said. That night, the moon shining into the tower room was softened by gauzy veils of cloud, tossed and shadowed a little by the cold trees outside. It sent over the small room a shimmering, mottled light, like sunlight in water, or Mother of Pearl. And so the adventure came just for the asking. It was the most dangerous affair so far. But in the beginning, it was very much like Eddie's pretty daydream, with the bright blue sky and the friendly, sandy shore. Chapter Nineteen The treasure rounded by the sea. They were walking easily along the edge of the ocean. The tide is out, said Edward. He could tell because much of the upsweep of the beach had been left wet and hard by the ebbing water. Why are we going this way, he said. He turned around and walked backward. Why not that way? Eleanor glanced hastily over her shoulder and walked quickly on. No, she said, this is the way we should go. Ahead of them a long line of rocks, thrust out into the water. "'Let's see what's on the other side,' she said. Eddie ran splashing in and out of the shallow water. Since it was low tide, there was not much surf. The water came in and went out quietly, almost without white crests on the waves. It curled and foamed in small bubbles around his ankles. His feet sank pleasantly into the gray sand. As the water withdrew, he found a dead whale. Look! Look! he shouted, dancing around it. It was enormous. The sea lifted the dead body a little and carried it a little farther from the shore. That's not a whale, said Eleanor, walking past it and making a face. It's a mackerel! Eddie poked at it with his foot. Of course it was! They were small again, and the fish was normal size. He hated to leave it. Come on, said Eleanor. But then she stopped and stared at the sand. There was a line of footprints running ahead of them, hugging the lapping tide line. Footprints in the sand, again. But these were children's footprints, no bigger than their own. See, she said, pointing. Eddie ran along the line of footprints, bent over, looking at them. It's two sets, he said. I'll bet it's theirs, Ned's and Nora's. He stood up and glanced at the receding water. And they must have been made since the last tide. The waves, too, had left their mark. Eddie could see the game that had been played. The double line of small footprints dodged in and out running along the edge of a wave to its high water line, then chasing it back. That was a game he and Eleanor loved to play, too. What fun the four of them could have, playing it all together. Eleanor climbed up on a big boulder and shaded her eyes with her hand, looking along the beach. The shoreline stretched in a shallow curve, making a long crescent that cusped out in the line of rocks far away. I see them, she said. At least, I think I do. Eddie climbed up beside her and gripped the boulder with his toes. Yes, he said, that's them, all right. His sharper eyes could see two specks that were children. They were frolicking in and out of the water far away and calling to each other with light shouts that were nothing more than thread like sounds above the soft noises of the surf. As they watched, the little figures began to run. Edward and Eleanor scrambled down from the boulder and started after them, blurred by the distance. The scraps of color that were Ned and Nora faded and reappeared to Eleanor's vision, the way a lost gas balloon does, as it rises higher and higher in the sky. Now you can see it, and now you can still see it, and you can still see it, then you can no longer see it. "'and you search the sky for it. "'Then you catch a glimpse of it again "'and watch it steadfastly. "'And you see it, and you see it, "'and you see it, "'and then all at once you can no longer see it at all. "'They were gone again! "'Even Eddie lost sight of them. "'And he slowed down at last and stopped. "'Oh, well,' he said, disheartened. "'Gone!' "'Gone,' whispered the water, "'purling up and sucking back around their legs. "'They turned away from the water then "'and started splashing their way up the sloping beach. "'And then for the first time, "'they saw what stood there, "'safely above the highest mark of the tide. "'It was the shell, the chambered nautilus, "'its curving, mottled sides reared high above the sand.' The small footprints of Ned and Nora were all around it. Eleanor and Edward approached it and stood and looked at it. The great lip of the shell extended toward them. Eleanor climbed up on it and stood up. Eddie climbed up too. The huge scooping surface tilted down and back and around a curving wall. They wanted to see what lay behind it. Eddie looked. "'There's an opening here,' he said. "'Let's go in,' said Eleanor. "'She let Eddie crawl through first, and then she slipped in behind him. "'They found themselves in a high room, oddly shaped, like a shallow S. "'The shell walls were thin and translucent, and the room was filled with light. "'Let's just see what's in the next room,' said Eleanor. "'See, there's another door.' They crawled through that door and found themselves in a room exactly like the one they had left, only a little smaller in size. That room, too, had another door, and through that door they could see another, curving off a little to the right. They went through them both, and then through many more, entering each time a smaller room, and winding closer and closer to the heart of the shell. At last, The chambers were so small that they had to stoop, then bend right over, then crawl on hands and knees. The last chamber was filled with pearls, pearls as big as baseballs, pearls as big as grapefruit, pearls as big as melons. Their satin surfaces were faintly pink or blue or gray or yellow. "'It's the treasure from the sea,' breathed Eleanor. "'Look at this one,' said Edward. He held up a white one that fitted his hand like a baseball and pretended to throw it. "'That's just a seed pearl,' said Eleanor. "'How do you like this?' She held her arms around a huge pink pearl. Her fingers wouldn't meet on the other side. It was like holding a pink cloud. Then... She gave a little scream. The whole shell was tilting. She dropped the pearl and fell backwards with a tumble of pearls and her brother piling on top of her. The room darkened. They couldn't see, but they knew perfectly well what had happened. A huge hand had picked up the shell, roughly, and was carrying it. Where? Suddenly the motion stopped. There was a grating noise, and the shell came to rest, subsiding in the sand at a little angle. The shadowy hand withdrew, and their small, treasure-laden chamber was filled with light again. Whose hand had it been? Where were they? Let's go now, said Eleanor. She rolled over and started filling her arms with pearls. Then she put them all down and picked up the big pink one, Eddie started gathering an assortment of different sizes and colors. "'Where's the door?' said Eleanor. Kneeling with her pink pearl in her lap, she stared at the wall through which they had come. "'There was no opening there.' "'Maybe it was in the other wall,' said Eddie. They groped around in the tiny space, bumping into each other, trying one wall after another, then the ceiling, and finally... "'kicking the pearls this way and that to hammer the floor. "'There was no door anywhere. "'For a moment they just sat and stared at each other. "'In the silence they could hear a new sound. "'It was the ocean. "'Its murmuring had been soft and indistinct, "'like the sound of someone memorizing poetry quietly under his breath. "'Now all at once it was a dull roar.' We must have been put down nearer the water, said Eleanor. And the tide is coming in, said Edward. They were trapped. They searched the walls again. Then they battered them again. But it was no use. At last, they sat back and just waited. Eleanor leaned against the wall and stared at her bare feet. She thought about what it would be like to be carried out to sea. If they were tossed around by the waves, she would be seasick. Everything made her seasick, even the swings at school. Eddie crouched beside her, listening to the sound of the water. The noise had diminished again. The roaring must have been the first big wave. It might be a while before there was another. He kicked a pearl. Waiting like this would be boring, If they were never going to get out, what would they do with themselves? To pass the time, he whispered the alphabet to himself backwards. Z-Y-X-W-V-U-T-S-R-Q-P-O-N-M-L-K-J-I-H-G-F-E-D-C-B-A. With the A, he felt the wall fall away from behind him, and he tumbled through falling on his back in the next room. The door cried Eleanor. She squirmed through too, and slid on her knees across the tipped floor to the opposite side. What had happened to the next door? It too was gone. Again. There was nothing but the delicate membrane of Mother of Pearl. What had made the first door come back again? All I did was say the alphabet backwards, said Edward maybe it's talking backwards that does it he rattled off a backward sentence nepo poo era e magneclack cab nepo poo that means open up here i am talking backwards open up nepo poo echoed eleanor but nothing happened she screamed it nepo poo nepo poo outside The sound of the ocean was growing louder again. No door appeared. No, said Eddie, that's not it. Eleanor stared at the blank wall. Then she tried something else. Little boy blue, come blow your horn. The sheep's in the meadow, the cow's in the corn. She stopped, and together they watched a little opening appear in the wall, just big enough for them to crawl through. You have to think something, said Eleanor triumphantly, something special. They had found the trick. I've got a good one, said Eddie, staring at the third blank wall. It's a joke. What squeals louder than a pig stuck in a barn door? Two pigs, said Eleanor scornfully. That will never work, but it did. The wall opened up. There was a door. It likes jokes, said Eddie, and poetry, said Eleanor. She shouted some. I fear the ancient mariner, I fear thy skinny hand, and thou art long and lank and brown as is the ribbed sea sand. Another door opened. For a while they had good luck with everything they tried. What's black and white and red all over? A newspaper! That worked. So did the first four lines of the village blacksmith. So did the purple cow. Then suddenly, nothing worked. The three little kittens didn't work. Neither did Humpty Dumpty. Desperately, Eddie tried to remember another joke. He couldn't think of any, so he made one up. What meows louder than a cat on the back fence? Two cats that didn't work either. What's happened? said Eddie. Eleanor looked up at the ceiling of the chamber in which they were kneeling. I think this one is big enough to stand up in, she said. They tried it, and Eleanor's head just grazed the top. It was a relief to stand upright, and all at once Eleanor knew what was happening. It was like Uncle Freddie's poem about the chambered nautilus. Build the more stately mansions, O oh my soul. Each chamber asked of them something bigger and better. Just as the sea animal that had built this shell had been forced to build himself bigger and bigger rooms because he was growing all the time. Their thoughts, too, were supposed to grow, Little Boy Blue and Eddie's jokes had been good enough for the smallest chambers, but now they must think of things that were nobler and nobler. She explained this theory to Eddie, and they stood in the new room, trying to think noble thoughts. Foolishly, all that Eleanor could think of for five long minutes, as the incoming tide rose higher and higher, and the highest waves came nearer and nearer, was, it's raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring. Edward tried multiplying 3,745 by 463 in his head. No door opened. But we're only halfway out, said Eddie. We need at least ten more good ones. (gasps) Ten! Ten, said Eleanor. The Ten Commandments. I learned them last year in Sunday school. Six of the Ten Commandments got them through six doors. That was all Eleanor could remember. She tried, Honor thy father and thy mother, over again on the seventh, but it didn't work. What about some of those things Uncle Freddie is always saying? said Edward. Eleanor remembered a funny one, Call not nature dumb. It worked fine, and so did, Old shoes will serve a hero. Eddie tried singing aunt lily's hymn o oh, for a faith that will not shrink and that worked too in a moment they found themselves standing in the loftiest chamber of all this must be the last said edward the great room was filled with milky light but now they could summon no thoughts large or small except the urgent one that they wanted desperately to get out Edward couldn't think of anything. Eleanor put her hands to her head and shook it, but nothing came out except the night before Christmas, and that wasn't good enough. And no wonder Eleanor looked around. What thought could possibly be too large for this room? The spacious, gently curving walls led up to an arched vault, a gracious dome, its pearly translucence softly filtering the light. It was a pure and lovely chamber, a mansion, more stately than the last and than all the rest. She despaired, and suddenly their situation became more dangerous. The beautiful chamber was lifted up by the water. There was, for a moment, an airy, buoyant sensation, a slight wallowing, and then they subsided again, tipped over to one side. We'll be washed out to sea, said Eleanor. Yes, said Edward. His face was white. They listened to the sound of the water with thumping hearts. The roar of the tide was doubled, trebled, multiplied over and over in their hard-walled cell. The reverberating echoes now filled up the intervals between the forward thrusts of the wave. Eleanor had to shout to be heard. Think of something, quickly! But then they were lifted again. The shell was caught by the crest of the newest wave and cradled gently on it. Eleanor slid to one side, falling against Edward. She clutched him, and they rolled over together as the wave began to suck the shell backwards. It was caught up then by a new wave, higher than the first, and thrown violently forward and downward. For a terrible moment, it was buffeted by the surf. Then they could feel it rolling over and over on firm sand once more. The waves fell away but the next wave would be upon them very soon. Eleanor lay limply where she had been thrown, moaning with nausea. Edward leaned up on one elbow and felt sorry for her. The tossing wasn't so hard for him. He had always liked roller coasters and wild rides. But Eleanor got sick on an ordinary swing. I wish she could get out of here, Eddie thought to himself even if I have to stay inside. And it was this thought of Edward's that pushed its way out of the chamber, too big for even so stately a mansion. The door opened. Outside, the sky was suddenly blue. For a moment, Edward and Eleanor lay still, staring at the bright light of day. Then they scrambled to their feet and tumbled out the door. They were free and standing once more on the scooped lip of the shell. Come on, quick, shouted Eddie, yanking at his sister's arm. Don't look back. One ghastly glimpse was enough for Eleanor. Waves as high as ten-story buildings were approaching, one behind the other, reaching down their foaming tops, as if to look threateningly at them. Run! Run! they screamed at each other. And they ran. They ran on the hard, wet sand until they came to the end of it. And then they started struggling with the dry sand, where their feet sank in and the going was slow. But the water still pursued them, frothing and boiling behind them. It stretched long, watery fingers after them, filling up their footprints as fast as they made them, licking at their heels, a chest-high surge of tide rushing close after. Soon they were ankle-deep in water, and then the water foamed waist-high all around them. Hold hands and dig in, cried Edward. They leaned forward and hung on. Almost, almost they were pulled down and back by the thick sucking of the returning wave. But then, at last, it left them alone and they were left high but not dry on the shore. They had barely enough strength to pull their feet from the mushy sand and stagger on again to safe ground in the high grassy dunes. There they lay down, gasping, with their faces to the sun, to rest. They woke up exhausted. Oh, that was terrible, said Eleanor. They looked at each other with wan faces. Then they both looked across the room at the bookcase against the wall. The shell lay there on top, seeming very ordinary and very small. They got up and went across the room to look at it. Were the pearls still inside? Eleanor swept aside her tangled hair and held the shell against her ear. But the sound of the sea made her shiver and she took the shell away from her ear again. She held it in her hand and looked at it. She ran one finger over the spotted volutes at the center. Was her pink pearl still there? Shake it, said Edward. She did, and there was a sound, a tiny noise, the minutest, hollow rattle. There is something inside, said Eddie. Give it to me he shook it beside his ear. It must be a pearl still in there, he said. Then artfully, skillfully, gently, he tipped and maneuvered and shook the shell. It was like one of those games in which a little piece of BB shot rolls into a hole if you tip the glass-covered box just right. The openings in the shell walls were still there and Eddie managed to coax the object farther and farther from the central chamber to the outside. Once, he almost had it all the way out. Then Eleanor jostled his arm by mistake, and he could hear the thing rattle its way backwards through many a hard-won door. Now see what you've done, he said angrily. I'm sorry, said Eleanor, looking bleakly at him. Delicately, he worked it back again then at last with masterful adroitness he brought it out of the last chamber it rattled through the door and rolled swiftly out into the iridescent mouth of the shell it was a pearl but it was a very very small one it was the seed pearl that edward had pretended to play ball with ned and nora must have found all the rest Oh, where is my pink pearl, said Eleanor, looking sadly at the infinitesimal bead in Edward's palm. That one would have been worth thousands of dollars. These little ones are a dime a dozen. Chapter 20 X Marks the Treasure Where's Uncle Freddy going, said Edward, turning to gaze in surprise at his uncle as he darted out past Edward, through the front door, carrying a hammer and a suitcase. It was snowing again. A wet, vengeful April snow. Aunt Lily hallooed after Uncle Freddy and ran after him with his galoshes and umbrella. Then she came back and explained it to Eddie. He has a notion to live in the yard, sort of camping out, she said uncomfortably. "But we don't have a tent," said Edward. "Oh, he's taken it into his head to live with Nature like Thoreau. He's going to live in the old apple tree-it's hollow, you know-and he's going to board over the top and put on a door." Uncle Freddie galloped up the porch steps again and ran past them, looking for a saw. "You three can settle down in the old chicken coop," he babbled. "I've just been looking at it. It has the most delightful view he was gone again. You see, said Aunt Lily gloomily, I finally told him about the house and the back taxes and how much we owe. First, he wanted us all to go straight to jail. To jail? said Edward. Henry went to jail for not paying his poll tax, and Uncle Freddy would just love to go to jail because of taxes, too. Then I tried to explain to him that they wouldn't put us in jail anyway for not paying. They'd just take the house away from us. Oh, Eddie, dear, said Aunt Lily, Mr. Preak has given us just two more weeks to pay all the back taxes, and I haven't even earned half the money. I thought perhaps we could borrow from the bank, but Mr. Preak is president of that too, and of course he said no. Well... I tried to tell all this to Fred, but he just got very excited. Who needs a house, he said. Why should gay butterflies be entangled in a spider's web? You know how he is. Aunt Lily leaned on the doorframe, rubbing her forehead. But why can't we live in the chicken coop, said Edward. He thought that sounded like fun. Because Mr. Preak will take it all. House, land, apple tree chicken coop, everything. Aunt Lily was close to tears. She went inside and shut the door. Edward went out to watch Uncle Freddy. He found his uncle working busily around the hollow shell of the old apple tree. Edward helped him. Together they nailed up some old boards in the branches to form a sort of piazza that might have come from Never Never Land. Then they slapped up a set of crazy steps leading to it. Wet snow plopped down on the earnest pair, but Uncle Freddy didn't seem to notice. He trotted back and forth to the cellar for a little pot-bellied stove, and soon he had it installed inside the hollow tree trunk, with a full scuttle beside it, and a jointed stovepipe carrying a cheerful column of smoke up and away from his board roof. Another gorgeous discovery in the cellar was a colossal pumpkin, which provided something to sit on and completed the furnishings of the interior. Drafts were kept out with a gay checkered tablecloth gathered across a string for a door. Then Eddie ran out of the house with an armload of torn sheets and discarded fringed bedspreads, and soon Uncle Freddy was frisking all over the tree bestooning it with awnings and draperies and playful canopies. His open umbrella was hung up to make a front porch for visitors to wait under. And as a final gallant touch, Uncle Freddy ran up his striped muffler to the topmost branch. They stood back and looked at it. Who needs more to keep out the cold? said Uncle Freddy proudly. Whoops, I've forgotten to invite my friends. He ran back into the house for Waldo and Henry, and soon he had them set up on orange crates that were wedged between branches. Before long their large noses and the tops of their heads carried dollops of wet snow, but they gazed straight ahead in their usual wise way, looking perfectly at home. Uncle Freddie found a little branch of pine and nestled it around Emerson's shoulders. Oh, Waldo dear, he said, how right you are. Not the body, but the spirit must be the architect of gigantic structures. It must build itself a house, and beyond its house a world, and beyond its world a heaven. It must, it shall. Its dominion is as great as Caesar's. He snatched up a piece of the torn sheeting, and draped it over Eddie. Then he snapped a twig off the pine branch and wound it around his nephew's ears. Emperor Edward, said Uncle Freddy, chucking him under the chin and sweeping him a low bow. In toga and laurel wreath, king of his own castle. Edward strutted pompously for a minute, dragging his sheet over the wet snow. Why couldn't they always just play at housekeeping with Uncle Freddy? Why did they have to be serious and anxious in a real house with Aunt Lily? But he soon decided why. The snow suddenly turned to rain and leaked through the cracks in the ceiling of the hollow tree. They squeezed themselves inside Uncle Freddy's narrow parlor and shared the pumpkin. But the stove hissed and steamed and smoked. It drove them choking out of doors and back into the big house. The big house that was their protection against wind and cold and rain and snow and sleet and frost and hot sun. A protection that would be theirs for only a little while. Then what would they do for a home? Eddie found Aunt Lily and pulled at her dress and asked her. Now don't you worry, I've got it all figured out, said Aunt Lily. She was doing her best to put a good face on things. We'll just move to Boston and live in a flat. She was moving swiftly around the kitchen table with a handful of spoons, knives, and forks, and banging them down in their places hard. We'll still all be together, and that's the important thing, whether we live in a poorhouse or a palace. She was reminded then of a song and began to sing it, sailing around the kitchen in rhythm and setting the plates down in graceful swoops to mark the ends of phrases. I dreamt that I dwelled in marble halls with vassals and serfs by my side, and of all who assembled within those walls that I was the hope and the pride. I had riches too great to count, could boast of a high ancestral name. But I also dreamt, which pleased me the most, that you loved me still the same. But I also dreamt, which pleased me most, that you loved me still the same. Oh, I'm sorry, said Eleanor, let me. Setting the table was her job, and there she was, sitting in the rocking chair with her wet shoes up on the radiator, reading a book. She jumped up and took the tray of dishes. How could she have been so lazy? Poor, wonderful Aunt Lily. She was working so hard and against such odds, and yet she still sang cheerfully about marble halls. Marble halls. Eleanor stopped suddenly, with a glass halfway to the table. There were marble halls in the treasure poem written on the window. A treasure made of ivory. A palace for the soul. Melodious marble halls. A treasure map enfold. Melodious? The clue could be a song. This song. Could Prince Krishna have known it? Of course he could. Aunt Lily might have sung it to him long ago. Eleanor could imagine it very well. Aunt Lily, sitting at the piano, with the big bow in her hair, singing the song about marble halls, with Prince Krishna looking shyly over her shoulder. But where was it, the printed sheet of music? Eleanor hurried to finish setting the table. Then she flew to the parlor and lifted up the top of the window seat. The inside was filled with books of music. Rummaging in it, Eleanor thought about the words of the song. How well they fitted, and how they must have struck home to Prince Krishna, for he must have lived once in marble halls with vassals and serfs by his side And of all who assembled within those walls, he must have been their hope and their pride. He had riches too great to count, undoubtedly, and he could boast of a high ancestral name. He was a prince, wasn't he? But what would have pleased him most of all, if Aunt Lily had loved him still the same, it was perfect. Eleanor found it then. At the bottom of the pile, a yellowed piece of sheet music, its edges crumbling with age. She turned back the cover to look at it, and a piece of paper slipped out of it and fell into her lap. She took it triumphantly to Edward, and together they studied it. There was no doubt about it. It was a map. And there's the X where the treasure is, exulted Edward. It's not a map exactly, said Eleanor. It's more like a plan, a house plan, see? It's like a huge building with lots of rooms. What building could it be? Is it anything like our house? No, our house doesn't have those curving side things sticking out. Could it be some other building in Concord? they decided to look up and down the village streets after supper and try to find a building like it. Up and down they tramped in the freezing dusk, but without any result, except for their own. All the other houses were simple squares. Even the town hall was just a set of rectangles, and so were all the churches. We might as well never have found the map for all the good it's doing us. Said Edward irritably. There never was such a building. At least nowhere we'll ever find. He was sitting in his pajamas on the edge of his bed. It was disappointing. Eleanor crawled under the covers and lay on her side. She found herself staring nervously at the Jack in the Box in the corner. For the first time, she wondered if it was really sensible for the two of them to go on sleeping in the Tower Room. The last dream had been so terrible, and they never seemed to come any closer to Ned and Nora, and the treasures hadn't been good for much anyway, and most of them never even turned up at all, and there was that Jack in the box. But the hook on Jack's box was tightly fastened, and Eddie had stuffed the mysterious plan with its spot-marked X into his pajama pocket and pulled the covers up over his head. Eleanor looked at the dark diamond in the window and sighed. Was the game becoming too dangerous? Well, tonight would be the last time. Tomorrow, she decided firmly, they would move their belongings downstairs. First thing. This is your host, Catherine lopez Lucre. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to The Diamond in the Window. You can find a link to our podcast on the Marshall Public Library webpage, www.marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.